welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. For a period in the 1980s and 90s, Oliver Stone directed movies as if somebody might stop him at any time. His movies tended to land like bombshells in American culture. Platoon, JFK, The Doors, Natural Born Killers. When I recently watched Salvador, I was struck by how Stone's lurid vision pushed boundaries to capture El Salvador's civil war and U.S. involvement. The urge to show the raw side of American history, however violent or chaotic, stuck in my mind as I talked with Stone recently for the podcast. The occasion for our conversation was the paperback publication of his latest book, which is partly a story of origins. The book's full title says it all, Chasing the Light, Writing, Directing, and Surviving Platoon, Midnight Express, Scarface, Salvador, and the Movie Game. But besides recounting Stone's experiences as a screenwriter and director, the book also gives a personal look at his childhood in New York as the son of a French mother and American father, as well as his experiences as a Vietnam veteran. Stone's global interests guaranteed that our interview would be a bit like lassoing a freight train. Our talk covers everything from the distribution of Salvador, to Trump versus Bush, to nuclear power, to his recent movie viewing. I'll let Stone kick things off with some good-natured joking after I try to explain away some background noise. Oh, so you're using this pandemic to relax, you mean? You're, you're, you're just goofing off for no. a couple of years. No, I, I, I wish, no. Well, it was funny, you know, reading the book. I grew up in New York, and, and it was funny to see recognized names, you know, like Trinity in the book and that sort of thing. Uh-huh. Many memories. Hackley and those kind of schools, they always had ringers, what they called ringers in those days. And they were all like six foot one or something. And we were small. I was small in those days. And God, we, we used to get creamed in football, 53 to nothing. Kind of thing. I mean, that's why I'm a film critic. I was never good at anything. <laughs> I wasn't good at sports. So. Well, anyway, very much grew up watching your movies. But I feel like I got another dimension on them through reading the book. What made you want to write this book now? Was, was part of it like taking stock? Yeah, well, I'm 74. And I've been through a lot. I made 20 directed 20 films and plus eight, nine documentaries. And I'm, you know, you get kind of, you, you, you have a lot of miles on you and you just, I guess it's expression, you know, you, there's a certain frustration in doing films. They're so big, enormous effort required. You kill yourself two years or a year and a half and then it comes out. And, you know, sometimes it's just misunderstood or it's not what you intended it to be. And I think there's a lot of frustration sets in, especially if people, sometimes get what they call first impressions. I think there's a lot of that, first impression thinking. And sometimes they're judging the movie before they see it, and I don't think that's fair. As I said somewhere in the book, it's very hard not to get the author of the film confused with the film. Sometimes there's a picture of the author that interferes. And I think by writing the book, there's less interference in a sense. I'm saying, okay, this is directly me, no interpretation, this is what I'm thinking. And it feels good to express yourself because sometimes you feel misunderstood. And I think that's part of the reason to do it. I think it's the same motivation to make a movie because I have to, I had to write the book and I have to, in the same sense, I have to continue this story, this odyssey, because if I don't finish this thing now, I mean, I have so much notes after 1987 
uh, it's kind of frustrating. It would have been nice to put it all in one book, but it would have been 800, 900 pages. And I don't think people would tolerate that unless you're Ilya Kazan or Frank Capra. Yeah. No, Ilya Kazan is amazing. He did such a confessional biography. I don't, have you ever read his book? I've read parts of it. I've read the whole thing twice because I helped me. And it's honest, you know, he's, he's honest in a way that Capra, which I love that book, but it's not as honest, it's not as personal. Frank Capra biography. But that, those kind of things, John Huston is pretty confessional. Yeah. John Huston, I think, you know, but it's a strange book because he, it's like his movies, they kind of wander around a bit. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. I like the book. Well, one thing that jumped out at me with the book is the fact that how you deal with violence in your movies comes out of your personal experience with war. You're coming from a familiarity with the extremity of violence. I think that's exactly, I tried to, in that section when I was writing about Midnight Express, which I, I first encountered the kind of assault that I, I mean, you can't believe some of the things that were said about Midnight Express. It was, it was considered vile by some, and it was a huge hit, but it was considered vile like Death Wish or something, too much violence. And I admitted to it. I said, look, you know, this is an exaggeration, but it's also not exaggeration. It's also, you cannot describe how violence hits, hits you. Violence is unbelievable when, you, when it comes upon you. It's in war, it's final, often final, or else you're maimed forever or some crap. I don't know if you remember it, but I was criticized for midnight. And the same thing happens over and over again, except on Platoon there, for example. On Salvador, yes. Salvador was very a violent place. When I went down there, I was shocked at the, you know, the, tor the death squads would torture people. You couldn't see that in any movie. They'd pull out their tongues, cut their balls off, put it in their mouth. I mean, all kinds of, to the women, they'd cut off their breasts. You couldn't even, you can't do that, honestly, in movies. And you don't want to in some way. But you can suggest the, the horror of it. And I guess it's very hard to do because it's always an approximation. Even when I did Platoon, which was shocking to some people, but it was still only an approximation of the violence. So now they've esthetized the violence to this degree where it's very great. I mean, the, the Ridley Scott does great stuff on screen. I mean, you can't beat it in terms of its look, but it's not a look. It's not a look. It's more than a look. It's, it's a gouging out of the stomach. It's, it's the eyes. It's, in other words, violence is extremely... It's one of the most brutal things in life and perhaps one of the most shocking. And I guess I've always been on the edge of it. So by the time I hit Natural Born Killers, which is later than the book covers, but I think what I'll write about is, yeah, at this point I had done enough. I was sick of it and I was like flipping it and saying, look, this is a satire. You know, this is too much. The violence is excessive. It's exaggerated. And if you don't see that, you're kind of dumb. And a lot of people didn't see it. They took it literally. I, I just couldn't take it yeah. seriously. And perhaps I have a different sense of humor. And I think that's part of my problem and why I don't quite fit in to the paradigm right now. I, I don't have the same feelings. I feel that war is still underestimated, especially by Americans, because we bring war to others, but we never suffered war ourselves. I mean, Salvador, you know, in, in terms of showing how awful war and the actual violence of it is, that was sort of a, a rediscovery for me. My timeline more started with uh, Platoon and, and moving from there. So watching Salvador is pretty extraordinary. And especially early on, you're having this shot of, of the hillside, you know, where all the 
victims of the death squads are. And you just kind of, you cut to, there's no like preparation for that. You know, they're skipping over the hillside, um, taking photos of it. It shows you the horrors, you know, and there's no way to talk around that. How did you figure out, you know, what to show and what not to show? You talk a bit about that in the book that Salvador was maybe like, you realized when you would show too much and maybe later you would kind of portion it out differently. Salvador is overdone. I mean, that's sort of the, it does have satiric elements in it. As you can see, it kind of starts as a, as a bit of a comedy, right? Animal House. These guys are fucking wacko. We're going to get pussy for 13 bucks. I mean, this was very much the anarchic spirit of Richard Boyle, who I loved, but he was out there. Uh, It was not me. That's what Pauline Kael kept thinking. I was Richard Boyle, but uh, Richard was a character and he lived this life. And through him, I could see the outlines of the war, but the shot on the hill is an exaggeration. There's no question. The death squads were real and they would torture the shit out of people, but they wouldn't leave them in a big mountain like that. They would always, they'd be five bodies, three bodies, one body. It was a general area. They would dump people and people would get buried. So families would come and pick them up or vultures would get them. Mm. But there was, I wanted just to put it all in quickly and say, look, don't, this is what's going on on the, in Salvador, wake up. And now people are, I see a lot of people are writing about Salvador finally, and uh, Guatemala and the brutality is Aztecian. And it's what they did to each other was shocking. But when you hear that the United States is backing these death squads, which was disgusting. I mean, we've, and we did, we had, we had, Americans don't understand that how bad it is. And because you know, when we, it's rebounded today. We, we complain about the Honduras people that are coming up here. Well, and Salvador, all they have is gangs now because we militarized the region so much that, mm. you know, people have to get out of there. There's nothing, there's no livelihoods. They haven't solved that problem. It, when it, the piece was written about, but so forth and so on. And Major Bob, who was based, as you know, on Dobesson, uh, was a real character. But, I mean, it, it was all overdone. But in a way it wasn't too, because the story of Maria, for example, she's typical. She comes here, she gets across the border and what happens? She gets busted by border patrol. This is 1985, six. There's a, there's a, a borderland where, I mean, 20, 30 miles into the country they're in. You're not in yet because that whole region has been militarized. So that's where you see a really heartbreaking scene. I think that was a great ending to the picture. Too much for people. Didn't make any money. It was a, It was a harsh trip at that time, harsh trip. And people don't want, frankly, there's no, there's not one box office hit for South America or Central America. I checked it out. I think one of the best films was Missing, which Costa Gavras did with Jack Lemmon. I loved that, but, and and Sissy Spacek, uh, John Shea, didn't do anything. I think people have turned off to it. It still hasn't been solved. If you can tell me one film that works from, I mean, that has worked for the American audiences. Salvador was much loved in Europe, England, especially in France and Italy, and it still plays. I, I, I think it plays as a film, but it's supposed to be larger. It was a bit, it's in the vein of natural born killers, exaggerated. Uh, the feast scene when, when he comes down to Colonel Figueroa, it was shot in a way that was even worse, but I had to cut back on that film because I couldn't get it distributed. It was turned down by uh, Orion, as I said, and it was also uh, John John Daly could not sell it anywhere, and he had the guts, thank God, 
Englishman, independent, tough little guy from uh, the boxing promotion field. He he distributed it himself. He formed his own company. And the picture didn't do anything, of course. And it was only finally rediscovered after Platoon came out. So I'm very lucky that way. But that's happened to a lot of my films. They kind of disappear. You know, when, when I've been going, going back to them and going through them, they all have they don't really date for me because they, the visual language is so strong and vibrant. And I think that's the difference between people making movies about history, a lot of them now, which is that they don't find a strong visual language, which is, I think is what you did for your films. Salvador was where you began working for a few films with Robert Richardson, right? Could you talk about that, that kind of partnership with him? Um, you originally chose him because he had just worked, he just shot a documentary in El Salvador, is that right? Well, he worked on the frontline piece. I don't know if he was the only cinematographer. He was a young, filled with energy. And as I said in the book, I was turned down by three or four of the top yeah. rising young cinematographers. I wasn't exactly in a picky position. Beggars can't be choosers. I, when I met Bobby, he was just perfect. I said, oh, fuck it, we're just gonna do, we gotta do this for a dime, we'd have no money. And if I had known the truth about how much money we really had, I would have probably given up. But we started this thing with this illusion that we could boil solely on the idea that I could con the Salvadoran government into supporting half the film, which was a crazy story because we literally got pretty far in that process until our advisor got killed. But uh, I was going to make a movie with my own, with my last dollars. I was going to mortgage my house and do everything possible. That I wasn't going to take no for an answer because I was fed up with Hollywood. I mean, I'd seen the development process and it was impossible. Everything got altered or beaten down. It was, I would never have gotten Salvador through the system. So I'm one of those, actually, I mean, I don't know why people don't, they say that Deep Soderbergh started the independent movement in 80, whatever it was with uh, whatchamacallit. But that was in 89. For us to go out there and do Salvador was the most independent movie of all. And we did Platoon very much the same way, although we had a distributor in a sense, although it wasn't locked in until we finished the film because they thought I'd be too violent. Uh, violence was, uh, was my first reputation, partly because I'd been a war veteran, but frankly, there's nobody hates violence as much as I do. I, I, I don't like to see it unless it's really necessary and wanted. And you, yeah. and there's nothing gratuitous about it. I think it is horrifying. So coming to, to Platoon, how, how, did you, how do you look back on that movie now in terms of, you know, the people you were actually in war with? Have you ever stayed in touch with people from your, your Platoon? Or did kind of making the movie kind of exercise the history for you in some way? Well, I was in four different units. One was in the south, the 25th Infantry, and then I moved up to, eventually to the 1st Cavalry, and I was in two different units of that. So there were different people, and I blended all the units into into uh, one group and the two sergeants were in the first cavalry, but they were not in the same unit. Everybody in that movie was based on somebody I knew at one point or another. Did you keep in touch with people from, from the units that, that you fought alongside? Yeah, I did. I did. And I, for, when the movie came out and we had such success, I, more than once we brought them a group of people to, to shoot in New York or Los Angeles, five or six people showed up. You know, I had to track down. I went down south and I had to go to these small towns to find them. Uh, some of these people don't have, you know, they have post office box addresses in yeah. Kentucky or Tennessee. And, you know, it's a post office box. You can't find people that easy. 
right. in those days. It was a computerization. We dug them up. We found them. Some of them are in bad shape. Some were, you know, looking for jobs and some of them were doing okay. There's film on it, but overall, you know, my life, I, my life was different than theirs because they went back to much poorer situations. You know, they didn't have the same privileges that I had had. I was very lucky to come back and finally find a place. I certainly could not, did not want to go back to Yale. <laughs> I could never get back into Yale. I didn't want to go back and my father would, uh, would have loved it, but I didn't know. I just had to find my way through writing and that was the way I found my way home eventually. But there were a lot of drugs and stuff, you know, that interfered as well as dislocation. All the people I knew from school, I lost along the way because I just had nothing in common with them. That's another wonderful thing about the book is how personal you get about your parents. And uh, I like this idea, of, you know, that in a sense, your, your mother was like a director and your father was like, had a writerly aspect to him. And so somehow you're, you're this combination of, of, of the two. Is, is that something you sort of felt more, more recently or? That comes from thinking back on your life. Yes, I was, always, I was always amazed by the difference between them. They were so opposite, so opposite. Uh, France and America, they didn't belong together in that sense. But I was always struck by that. And people always would talk about, you know, how my mom was this, my dad was that. But uh, no, only when you do the book, that's when you start to think. And the same thing goes for Vietnam. I, you know, I've discovered all this stuff late. Like, what was the meaning of the war? I talk about three lines. I, I didn't see that at the time. I always felt that it was a disgusting experience. It was stupid war. It just didn't make sense the way we were fighting it. But there was no big view until that formed later in life as I was going on. And the same thing is true about the Kennedy killing because that occurred in that same period. I talk about lies, the big lies, but I didn't realize it was a lie too. And uh, it, at least you may, not, you may not think so, but so that came later. Everything came later in the 80s and the 90s, and that's where my worldview really improved. In some people, degenerated or whatever, some people consider me crazy. <laughs> and the 70s was a fertile period, meeting people, hearing different points of view. Frankly, a lot of them were women, like the Jane Fondas of the world, who were very radical and feminist, and they were talking about stuff that had not been talked about before, so that was pretty eye-opening. You know, the, the 70s period, I was almost curious to hear more more about you're living on Avenue A at, at, at one point. Uh, were, were, you, were you taking in some of the like New York culture at the time? Did you go to like anthology film archives or something like that or shows or? A little bit, sure. But uh, I, I was more reading screenplays, trying to become a screenplay writer. But you know, again, I, w I was more on the outside than taking a lot of drugs and meeting. There was a lot of wackos in the East. In the in the lower east lower of Manhattan, and I certainly hang, hung with them. And you know what that scene was? Maybe you don't know, but that scene was pretty wild. There were a lot of junkies in that neighborhood, Avenue A. And it wasn't gentrified, so I got robbed a few times. And NYU was saved my ass in a way. Going back to that, I had the GI Bill, so I got in. And also, I happened to fall into whatever Scorsese's class was one of the first classes. So I guess you could say I was lucky to meet good teachers. They were all good teachers there. NYU was pretty interesting and very little low tuition. But still, that kind of put me on the path doing something with my life. A lot of my people in Vietnam did not have that opportunity. They 
they, uh, it was hard for them to get back to the States and reintegrate. My prison experience was very important. Mm-hmm. It showed me the Jim Morrison side of America, the America with a K, you know, that sense of this is not a friendly place. This is not home anymore. This right. is a country that's, as it is now, polarized. A very different country. Well, it's funny. The past four years, obviously, have been, you know, bizarre in all the worst ways. What would be the movie you would make of, like, the January 6th invasion of the Capitol or something? I wouldn't make much of it. I mean, I see it, but there was, some, there was equivalent violence back then. You know, I thought it was oversold. We've, we, we've over-exaggerated everything every, all through American life. You know, we, we put ourselves at the center of the universe, like a lot of people do, and we think we're the most important. And what happens here is reverberates around the world. But I can assure you, a lot of people don't even think about that shit. The violence was moderate, you know, and it was certainly eye-catching, but I didn't react to it the way you did. I was much more upset, really upset with Bush. I think he was the guy. And Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld, those are the, those are the guys who really upset me because you realize I was drifting back and forth. We went to war. First of all, it looked like the 70s was going to be good. We were going to get out of this thing, this racket of going to war. When Bush did his number and sent us back in, well, Reagan started it with Granada, which was awful. That Granada thing may be small, but it was so badly done and fucked up and lies. And then uh, after Granada, I mean, I'm a war guy, so I was looking at this and saying, what the fuck are we doing? We're going back into Iraq on these bullshit, this bullshit invasion and if you get into the Kuwait story, it's quite something. I did in Untold History. I mean, we examined it all the way they lied us into the war. Bush wanted that war. And that was crazy war. It was just a great new mili- militarization of the country was happening. It was unbelievable. Love of weaponry, love of bombing. The same stuff that's going on now. Except now we're not as overt about it. We don't put it on TV. But that was the beginning. So I was going back and forth. And I thought, you know, I thought we got to conquer this fucking evil. And I, I was hoping in the 90s that we had. And Clinton, there was a, a moment of hope, I suppose. Boom. Bush gets in on lies. He, he's not elected. He, that was a stolen one. <laughs> I mean, it, these are far worse things that happen than everything they taught. Trump, for some reason, upset the establishment very much because he was, he was like farting in public, I guess, you know. But he was not, he was not a, a violator in the fundamental sense of, of Bush because Bush broke all covenants and, and just chose the war. It wasn't like the war came to him. He actively sought out that war, lied about it, and put us into a huge generational 20-year uh, fucking war. I mean, we're still in Iraq, but the point is we ruined that country. I mean in the same way that we ruined Vietnam, but Vietnam recovered. I don't know that Iraq will recover. That was a big deal for me. It was a big deal. I didn't, I, I have to say my, he was the worst president we ever had next to his, actually his forebear was Pierce, not uh, her mother's side, Bar- Barbara Bush is a Pierce and she was related to Franklin Pierce. Oh. Uh, he was considered the worst president up until, yeah, 1850, right before the Civil wow. War. Franklin Pierce was this, second worst president up until his fucking grandnephew or whatever you want to call it <laughs> became president. Trump is a bump on the log. Yeah, he's an aberration. A continuation of a symptom that has grown and grown into a cancer. Well, just to jump back to a couple of things in the book, just to pick a couple of really interesting things for you boys, that you, you seem to have struck up a friendship with Billy Wilder. That, that's, that came out of a reversal of fortune, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, he was very supportive. I suppose he helped a lot of people I didn't know about, but he was very supportive and he always got a kick out of me because he thought I was kind of crazy and he, <laughs> he, uh, to make a three-hour movie. I guess he, he grew up under the studio system, which is very circumscribed. I mean, there were certain rules and limits and the, 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 that period was changing. And here I was doing JFK about the murder of the president. You didn't do that in his day. You just didn't. Right. Uh, it was shocking at that time. You didn't break those boundaries. And then I followed up with Nixon, <laughs> which was three hours and it was longer than JFK. And uh, he was, you're not going to make a dime. I mean, he was, <laughs> he would laugh. Yeah. But I love to hear him talk. You know, he talks so beautifully. He had that accent and he could tell great stories and he was always seeing the bright side of things, the, the humorous side of things. And a lot, I had loved those lunches and I miss him. Reversal of Fortune, he didn't like the script. Uh, we tried to get him to do that. And it wasn't his kind of movie, I guess, because I just, it wasn't humorous enough. I don't know. And then I was also interested to learn about, obviously as a screenwriter, you're constantly across your career. Some get made, some don't. Yeah. Uh, and I was curious about the project Defiance. What is your vision for that? That was about a composer, conductor in USSR who was a dissident? Yeah, it's a good script. Uh, I can't tell you how much time I've, I don't think it's wasted, but how many scripts I've written that haven't been made. So, you know, if I'd just been a director, like a lot of people are, and I just used other writers, I would have gotten many more films done. I, I in some ways, it's a, it's a bad choice to be a writer-director because you do get stuck. You get stuck in this mentality where you have to fix something. You're always, you're always struggling against something. And I think there's a lot more joy, or, or I think, in yeah, a writer here, I'm going to have the second writer here, and I'll let them worry about it. I'm going to develop it. I'm going to tell them what to do, and this is what I want, and let them worry about it. And if it doesn't work out, like Spielberg could say, I've spent some money, but, you know, I, I'm waiting for the next hit and I will make the hit. And that's the right way to perhaps go about this business. And it's obviously a wasteful way, but at the same time, it's also smart. Whereas I waste time worrying about shit. And defiance, I lived in Russia. I did the whole thing in Russia. I mean, I saw 10 cities, 15, 20 dissidents. That's a lot in the middle of all that. Uh, the last three years of the Soviet Union, it was falling apart. It was awful, awful place. And uh, these people were very courageous. They were all, had come from gulags or psychiatric hospitals. And the script is about this composer, yes. Actually, I had no luck because Gorbachev came in two years later and that killed the deal. I mean, there was, the Soviet Union was not the same, you understand, it was just changed completely. Actually, the film could be made now, but it could be made about America. <laughs> and, You're working on a couple of documentaries now. Yeah, I kind of given up on film. I mean, it's not to say I won't do another film. Uh, Snowden was an exhausting experience. It took a lot out of me. It was hard because we really tried to make it as authentic as possible, but nobody would support the film in America. Very little support. We had to finance it out of Germany and France. And uh, we shot America in Germany. We came back. We were scared, too, because of the Snowden controversy. Right. And we thought we'd have interference. Who knows? But we ended up going back to the U.S. for three, three different locations, but stayed basically in Germany and uh, Thailand or Hong Kong. Very tough film to get made. Couldn't get a good distributor. Same problem. 
we had a, a low, uh, a small house like John Daly's house, open road, very little identification. And they distributed, they tried, but they couldn't penetrate. They opened it at the wrong season. We should have, uh, Can wanted this, they, they loved to film it. We, he wouldn't go to Cannes because at that time, at that time they felt that you had to hold the film. You cannot open it abroad, show it somewhere, and then it would lose its appeal. That's not true anymore with the streaming. If we'd gone streamer, I think it would have made a lot more sense. Mm. So that was disheartening. That's not to say I would give up if the right thing came along and yeah. I was developing the right thing. I'm, but documentaries are very important to me because, first of all, I'm doing this clean energy documentary and nuclear is very much a part of that. So I'm dealing with a lot of scientists. I've been to France, I've been to Idaho, I've been to the US places and the Russian, and Russia is very advanced too. And I'm trying to make a worldwide documentary about the need for to fill that gap, to get to that place where we can actually decarbonize the entire world by 2050 realistically. There's a big gap between renewables getting there without going to gas. So uh, this is where nuclear plays a huge role and very important role. And nuclear is a miracle development. It's, it's been misunderstood, <laughs> like many things, made malignant. But if people really think this through and find out and educate themselves, it's a very important documentary. It's very important that I lay it out right, and it's, a, it's kicking my ass. Have you, have you traveled for the documentary no. to like any, any particular like nuclear sites? Yeah, I went to uh, Idaho Lab, which is a big, that's where we're doing a lot of advanced experimentation in uh, nuclear. And uh, I'm going to probably do another one in Washington, D.C. With, And I went to France, which is one of the most advanced countries. They have the most per capita electricity is all nuclear and hydro. They have no uh, gas and oil. France has been doing this since 19, since de Gaulle's time. They, they started in the 60s and uh, they've built up a tremendous system. Uh, so has Sweden. So these are admirable companies. Now, Russia and China have also tremendous development. Certainly China has been one of the, also a big one, but I, I can't get access there. The United States has tremendous resources and smart people. And there's 50 startups that are working on SMRs, small modular reactors. Biden has started this process of unifying this and trying to get some momentum. The other documentary was a feature-length documentary on the JFK killing, which I won't, leave, I won't leave it alone. This one is as if I was doing a feature film as a documentary. It's factual and brings to up to date all what's happening, not everything, but everything that's happened that's important on this case and the evidence that exists that has very rarely been presented to the public, especially the evidence from the Assassination Records Review Board, which came about because of the film in 1990. For five years it lasted. They did a lot of work. They weren't allowed to investigate, but they were allowed to declassify. So they did some work that was very helpful, and we bring that to the light. So we're going over the case one more time. The truth will never die. You can't just accept this bullshit. You can't accept the Warren Commission conclusion, and you yeah. cannot accept Oswald is the assassin. You have to understand that he's the alleged assassin. Just to wrap up, first, just a kind of thought, thought experiment. If you were to make a, a fiction movie now, what, what would be the story you would most like to direct? I, I wrote a, a movie, uh, White Lies, about my, my own life, and that is fiction, but it borders on a lot of the things that happened. So hmm. I didn't do that. Uh, I didn't do the movie yet. 
I love what people like Fellini and Truffaut were able to do to personalize, but maybe that's not in the cards for me because it's not the American cinema. They don't, they don't go for that. The people like Bob Fosse did that and uh, Paul Mazursky, but it's very hard for American filmmakers to, to do something personal, but that would be my best uh, effort as a so-called fictional movie. I love uh, realities. I mean, the Assange story fascinates me. Julian Assange story. As a writer, I just love structure. How do you solve, how do you go about it? How do, how do you do it? And uh, I was curious, what was the last thing you saw? What was the last movie that, that you watched? Oh, I've been uh, at home. I've been on my widescreen. I've been able to watch about a hundred uh, old movies. Of, and I've been writing about it in f my Facebook page about oh, movies, yeah. the oddball vintage movies that I've discovered. And I've listed about 20 of them that just off the top of my, I mean, there's no, see, I think people misunderstand. They, they always go off these film critic lists and crap like that. 10 best movies. That doesn't mean anything. It really doesn't because there, there was a period here, a renaissance in film going back from 1920s on of fascinating films. I mean, the, the whole of human experience has been covered and we're scratching the surface because we're not really paying attention. You have to see a movie a second, third time to understand what's really going on. So you go back and I'm visiting all the films that I loved when I was young and some I loved and I don't, they don't work anymore and some I get better. It's a rediscovery process and we're all archeologists and we don't know that much. We're, we're digging around the pyramids in Egypt and we're finding bones all the time. So it's not fair to talk about the best of anything. So many great films. And you can look at my Facebook thing if you want to including the career of Victorio De Sica, for example. I mean, he was always respected, but I didn't know as much about him as when you see all his movies. And you see, I love his comedies, the way he did Marriage Italian Style, for example. Classic. I mean, beautifully written. The Zavattini and uh, these guys were really on the ball. The, the wisdom about life, it's throughout the movie. There's not one false note in the entire movie. No, that's, that's the beauty of movies, you see. We haven't really appreciated it. I mean, it is like painting was in the 15th century, really, the 16th too. I mean, it's a sense of wake up. The, there are classics, they're buried. Look at them again. I've seen so many movies from the 30s that knock me out, knock me out. And just beautiful, beautiful screenwriters, beautiful studio films, unstudio films. I mean, you don't just have to go to independent. So many great studio films. You know, I didn't really study enough in film school about that, but... I'm catching up now because I have a little more uh, age on me. Well, all right. Thank you so much again for, for taking the time. Uh, I look forward to the second volume and, and maybe we can talk again uh, th there. <laughs> Thanks so much. Mike. The book, because of COVID, has not been able to get around as much as I would have liked. I haven't been able to do any signings. You know, I used to do book signings for Untold History of the United States. And unfortunately, with COVID, you don't you don't have access to that personalization of bookstores. I, I went around the country, Portland and Minneapolis, all these places, and I, you, you meet people who love books, and that is a great, great thing. And you talk to them, and you sign books, and it, it moves the needle. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast by subscribing at rapold.substack.com. That's rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs>